I think this is the fourth message in our series, The Art of Being Human. And um, we're looking back in this series to the early chapters of the book of Genesis to tell us about our origins, to find out exactly what it means for human beings to flourish, to come alive as humans were meant to come alive, to learn what it is to be fully human. And so here's what we've learned so far, and I'm going to compress it into a nutshell so we can move forward into some other things to look at this morning. Here it is. God created Adam and Eve and us, their descendants, in his image and likeness. And he gave us a mission with two major parts to it. Number one, Fill the earth. That means populate the earth with generations of human beings. The second thing, go out and subdue the earth, subdue the planet. What that means is develop it. Draw from all the raw materials and resources that God placed in this wonderful planet of ours. And then with all the unique gifts talents and callings that are spread out through all the different human beings that are, that are being born. As co-partners with God, we go out into this creation with his mission like a, fly, a fire burning in our hearts, loving the creation just as much as he loved it all six days. You know, It says at the end of all those six days, God stepped back and he enjoyed his work. And he took delight in every single blade of grass, every flower, every butterfly, every animal, everything God created. And so he sends us out into the earth loving it just like he does and with a passion to uh, use our gifts, our mighty, our multi-varied gifts and callings. And we've learned a little bit in these past few weeks that all of us have a different calling. Uh, And some of those are these. And this is what it takes to build culture, to build a world, to take Eden and spread it into the world. Uh, We go out there as parents, homemakers, farmers, builders, construction workers, engineers, architects, economists, leaders, educators, teachers, mechanics, inventors, entrepreneurs, science, scientists, biologists, zoologists, botanists, astronomers, athletes, artists, authors, musicians, chefs, bakers. And, And you keep on going. You noticed I put bakery in there. (laughs) Okay, bakers. That came to my mind. Uh, Anyway, uh, every human being, as they flourish in the art of what their unique humanity was created to be, we are co-partners with God in taking Eden, filling this earth with the glory and beauty of Eden. That was the original intention with which God created us. And if the world had never fallen into sin... (laughs) All of these callings, most all of the callings that are represented in this room today, would still have existed in that unblemished world. Uh, So we need to have an elevated view of what it means to be called by God. Your work is absolutely vital. What you do outside of the walls of this church is a calling from God. Now, that's what we read in the first two chapters of Genesis But now we come to Genesis chapter 3. You know, in fairy tales like Jungle Book, and I suppose many of you have seen Jungle Book, it's a great movie, Uh, or Winnie the Pooh. I like Jungle Book a lot better than Winnie the Pooh. I can't quite get with Winnie, and I can't quite get with Christopher Robin either. Anyway, (laughs) but 
In the first two chapters of Genesis, the animals are described normally, exactly as we think of animals today. They do not have an, a level of intelligence that enables them to reason and to think and to speak language like we do. Only human beings talk. Animals don't. But when we get to chapter 3 of Genesis, there is something very unusual and unexpected that's introduced into the narrative. And I'm sure this had to be really surprising to Adam and Eve, too. Because, you know, Adam had named all the animals uh, because God had given him authority. He had rule over the creatures of the earth. Uh, and, and God lists the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the domestic livestock, uh, the wild animals, and the things that creep and crawl along the earth, like snakes and lizards and all those other kinds of things. Uh, but here we have, in the third chapter of Genesis, a serpent that speaks. Now, you know, a lot of people in the 21st century, they read to the gen third chapter of Genesis, and man, they close their Bibles and say, wait a minute, <laughs> okay, I got the first two chapters, but I don't think I can take a talking snake, all right? Uh, so they close their Bibles and forget about it. Uh, but I want to ask us to take a little closer look at this this morning. Because what we see in Genesis chapter 3 is we're not dealing with just a snake. The scripture says, the serpent, in Genesis 3 verse 1. The serpent. This was not just any serpent. Uh, God had created a lot of reptiles, of varieties of kinds of snakes, and they were just like all the other non-talking creatures described in those first six days. But this serpent had personality, intelligence, communication, ability. It had an awareness of God and of what God had told Adam and Eve. And the scripture says this serpent was crafty, deceitful, lying. And this serpent also had an evil intention and strategy. The serpent was anti-God. He was angry with God. His intent was to belittle God and shrink him down and to question God's motives and character. Now the scriptures go on, outside of Genesis, to identify the serpent as Satan, who had once been a great, mighty, beautiful creature of God, a high angel of the highest order, who had at some point in the past turned away from God. Revelation chapter 12, 9 refers to the serpent. It says it this way, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, deceiving the whole world. And then Jesus, no one less of less credibility and stature than Jesus Christ himself, referred to the devil and called him a liar from the very beginning. Now, then that's the serpent. But why did Satan use his considerable power as an invisible spiritual being to enter into one of the creatures to speak through that creature? Why didn't Satan take a more direct approach to Adam and Eve and just appear to them in some sort of angelic form? Uh, 
or speak to them in some sort of a direct, audible voice? Why didn't, why didn't he do that? Well, I think there's a couple thoughts here. Number one, the serpent was a lowly creature that had already been placed under human authority. They were under the authority of Adam and Eve. If, a, if, if Satan had come in some sort of fantastic, supernatural appearance to Eve, it might have threatened her, it might have spooked her, scared her away. But if Satan approached her as one of the lowly creatures that were already under their authority, then there would have been no alarm here. And she wasn't spooked. She had a different emotion. She had a lot of curiosity. We've seen a lot of snakes around. We've seen a lot of serpents, but I've not seen one yet that spoke. And so her, she was drawn. She, her curiosity was aroused. And then I think the other thing, the other reason why Satan chose the format, form of a serpent there was serpents are known to entwine themselves in trees. Now, the scripture doesn't say that this serpent was entwined in the tree that we're going to be referring to in a moment. It doesn't say that. But we do know this, that that's exactly where he wanted to draw her attention, so it wouldn't surprise me if the serpent was in the tree. Okay, And what was the tree? Well, it was a tree with a special name. It was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It sounds like a really important tree to me. But was this a magic tree with magic fruit? Okay, that goes back into the fairy tale department, okay? It's not a magic tree. And it's not magic fruit. And I know a lot of artists picture the fruit as an apple. We don't know what the fruit was. Uh, and that's a little bit on the irrelevant side. It was a tree, and this is sort of the profound part of this. This was a tree that the scripture says very clearly was planted where? In the smack dab center of the garden. Which means that this is a tree that was planted smack dab in the center of all creation. It was right at the very center. So it must be a, something that something is very significant is being said to us in this, in, in this passage. Uh, and this tree represented God as the only one who is capable, qualified, to define what is good or evil. God is the only one who has the ability and the wisdom to define what, for human beings, what is right and what is wrong. And that's why that tree was at the center. It represented God. Now, uh, the issue then wasn't the fruit, whatever that fruit was. The real issue here was the disobedient choice and the action that Eve took to take and eat of the fruit. It was her disobedience that was the issue. There have been a lot of times when Jill has made a great dessert at the house and she will have to go run some errands somewhere and she'll, the last words to me if I'm there or she'll leave a note right on the counter where I'm going to see it. Do not eat that dessert, that pie, that cake. Do not eat that. This is for such and such an event. And uh, now, okay. If I were to disobey Jill, 
And I've never done that, okay? But if I ever did and ate a piece of that cake or pie, it wouldn't be the ingredients in the dessert or the kind of dessert it was that got me in trouble. It would be my act of disregarding her instructions about eating that. It's the same thing with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's no magic quality in the tree. It's what it represents. So Satan presented the lie to Eve. And the lie. There's one basic lie underneath all the lies that we buy into as human beings. And this is it. He convinced her that God was standing in the way of her freedom to be her own person. In other words, he tricked her into thinking that the art of being human, the art of flourishing as a human being, can be found apart from God. Verses 3, 4, and 5 are are what Satan says to Eve. Did God really say, you must not eat of any tree of the garden? And then in verse 5, he says, Look, he, I'm, sort of, uh, uh, I'm sort of summarizing here. Look, God doesn't want you to eat of that tree because he knows it will give you power to become a god just like him, to become equal with him. That was a pretty attractive thought, to become equal with God. And he wants, he wants to keep you from all that you can be. He wants to keep you under his control. He wants to limit your freedom. So Satan's saying, if you will simply eat of this tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, then you'll be the one making the rules. You'll be the one determining what is right and what is wrong. And you won't have to worry about living within anybody else's boundaries God's boundaries even, you can set your own boundaries. And we know the story. They both swallowed the lie, and that's sort of a pun intended, okay? They swallowed the lie. And immediately, what God had said would happen, it happened. Immediately, instantaneously, they died. Now, they didn't die physically, They didn't stop breathing, but they died deep, deep inside. They died spiritually. And what that death looked like was this, that the presence of God and his own image and his own likeness that filled the the deepest parts of who they were, their hearts, that all of a sudden vacated. There was a vacuum there, a spiritual vacuum, and it was replaced with the likeness and the image of Satan's, the kinds of attitudes that Satan has toward God and toward humanity and toward everything. And so the co-partnership with God to build a world filled with the goodness and glory and the beauty of Eden and the culture of heaven was exchanged. And it became a co-partnership with Satan to destroy this world. And you know, I believe a destruction of four kinds at least, four categories of the way Satan wants to destroy this world. Number one, spiritual destruction. 
Verse number 8, Genesis chapter 3, says, talks about spiritual destruction. It says this, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This text seems to be saying that as Adam and Eve got to work in the garden, at the end of each day, during the cool of the day, the evening, God in some fashion or other, would, God would come walking into the Garden of Eden to spend time with them in the evening. And probably what they were going to be doing is one of the things they'd be saying is, man, this was a great day. This was a good day. And they would be enjoying conversation and communication with God. And, and God was just as real to them as I can see you this morning. That's how real the presence of God was with our first parents. Every evening they spent with him. And they probably just, man, they couldn't wait for that time with God. But here it says this time, after they ate of the fruit, it says that when they heard the Lord, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, it says they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They went out and hid. So, that's a huge fundamental change there. A spir- that's spiritual destruction. Uh, instead of running to God, as they had always done before, now they ran away from God. And you know, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says that the same spiritual death that had spread into Adam and Eve, it spread out from Adam to all humanity. And that means you and me. Spiritual death. This desire to run away from God, to resist God, to have a control issue with God. To not want God... We sang a few moments ago, I surrender all. Well, that's, that is the last thing that Satan would ever desire of any human being, to surrender to God. It's the opposite of what he desires, to keep running away from God. So that's, that's spiritual destruction that's come into human hearts. Now, there's also self-destruction. Spiritual destruction leads to self-destruction. And as, an, as sort of a sad but a real-life illustration of, uh, of what self-destruction is. This is one form of self-destruction, and it's very common in our world today. And I just uh, I want you to get, take a look at a picture of a young man, 23 years old. I think we have that picture on the screen of Devon. This is Devon. I want to I read for you a letter that his mom and dad wrote to him. It says, Dear Devon, I wish I would have known the weight you were carrying, known the boy with the beautiful smile was falling. You were the all-American kid, high school quarterback, prom king, beloved friend and son. You were also addicted to Adderall. I never realized you were addicted to anything but life. You were a leader, had excellent grades and scholarships, and were an ambassador for college. But most importantly, you were loved by all that met you. You would walk in a room and be that guy everybody needed. Whether they just needed to talk or needed a shoulder to cry on, you were him. Or if someone just wanted to kiss or toss the football around, you were the first in line. You were so busy being what everyone else needed that you never asked anyone for help. You thought you could fix everything. After all, what harm uh, could the study drug do? So many college kids take it. Why not you? 
When you came home from college last year, your mood changed. The boy with the beautiful smile was gone. You were always angry. Your grades dropped. And once a vibrant life was a hollow shell. We assumed that you were burned out from school and needed a break. You just needed time with the family and some home cooking. We didn't know uh, and wish we could go back. How we wish we could go back. Devin, it never crossed our minds that you were doing a drug. You never told us you had a problem. I know now, Devin, that you were doing that what you were that you were doing what you had always done and trying to fix it. It wasn't until you were already having suicidal thoughts and you almost ended your life that you told us. I remember so clearly the day that you asked for help. You had wanted to end your life. You even had a rope in the tree. It wasn't until you checked your phone and we saw, you were looking, saw we were looking for you that you realized what you were doing. You came home. You said that you could never put us through that and didn't want to die. You wanted help. That's when we finally understood the gravity of the problem. But we're still dumb to the drug. Adderall became real. It began to remove its mask and started revealing its hideous face. It infiltrated our lives. We took you and had you evaluated at the hospital. You stayed for three days. You started therapy and set guidelines and goals. You and your brother Vic were going to church twice a week. I knew you were studying the Bible. I knew you were clean. I saw that beautiful smile again that I hadn't seen in a long time. I didn't know then, I had no idea of the depth of your addiction. I wish Adderall didn't exist, Devin. I wish I'd known then that three out of every hundred people that take Adderall have a breakdown of the central nervous system. And then I'm going to skip down a little bit here. At the beginning of 2017, after a time of looking like things were getting better, you changed. Once again, the drug invaded our lives. When you said you were sick with a stomach virus, we thought nothing of it. We gave you the weekend to rest. It was Vic who came to get me at work that Tuesday, Devin. Uh, we had been trying to get in touch with you. We had gone about our daily routine, routines. Never could we have imagined in our worst nightmares what happened Monday, January 16th. You had gone hunting, cooked food, signed into the deer camp, and then my beautiful, sweet Devin and he ended his life. You ended your life. It was your dad who found you the next day. He sat with you for half an hour before he called anyone. When I found out my son was dead, I wanted to scream from the top of the roof that it was an accident. Adderall did this. We love, we love you, Devin, and know God will use you to heal others. The 23 years we were blessed to have you were the best of our lives. Signed, uh, love, mom and dad. And I just read that. It was a post, um, Hope and Friendship placed that post on the, a couple, three days ago. And I read that and I reread it and I, oh, it just, it broke my heart. Uh, uh, 23 years old, whole life in front of him. The art of being a flourishing human being. He did not, he didn't get to know that. And this is just one example, one, one example of this being repeated tens of thousands of times. Satan, this was his plan from the beginning to lead human beings to self-destruction. And, and drugs is just one way to self-destruct. There's many ways to self-destruct. 
But that's Satan's plan. And that's the world we live in, isn't it? Now, there's also relational destruction. Adam and Eve's attitudes toward each other immediately changed after they disobeyed God and ate the fruit. Verse number 7 says this. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Um, What that's saying is this, that for the very first time in their relationship, they began to feel unsafe in each other's presence, exposed and vulnerable with one another. They began to feel mistrust and suspicion, suspecting the motives, the intentions, the thoughts of the other. Of, of the other. Now, so they went out, out of a sense of self-protection, to cover their vulnerability to make themselves feel safer. They went out and made uh, the first clothing ever, I guess, out of fig leaves. Now, the thing is, it says here they knew they were naked. Now, we have to think about that for a second because before this happened, they weren't blind, okay? They knew, I mean, they saw each other before this happened, and they were naked, okay? So what is, what's the change that's, that's being described here? You know, if you go back to uh, chapter 2, verse uh, 22 to 25, we have a description of the first wedding. Uh, it says, right after God created Eve, uh, that it says, and he brought the woman to the man. To me, that's God officiating at the first wedding. Uh, and you know what Adam did as soon as he saw Eve? He broke out into the first ever recorded bit of poetry and song. It burst out of him. She is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of the... And then it goes on and says, this beautiful thing, and the two, uh, and, and the two uh, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two of them shall become one. And that was God's intention for the marriage relationship. Nothing, absolutely no cloud of suspicion or anything like that feeling totally safe with each other in relationship. And he not only wanted that for the marriage relationship, he wants that for every human relationship, to feel totally safe with other people. That's what the world would have been. But now, what they, what they had come to realize now, they had come, when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what they really experienced was, they didn't, learn, they didn't become the definers of good and evil, a god, what they learned was the experience of what it is to commit evil and the spiritual vacuum and destruction that comes as a result of that. Uh, Abuse, betrayal, shame, all the trouble in human relationships that are represented in this room or have ever been experienced in this room came from that very moment. And then there's a fourth destruction, and we're gonna not, I'm going to say, not say much about this one today. It's, it's environmental destruction. You know, Satan hates everything that God has made, including every single blade of grass, every flower, every animal. He hates your pets. Satan hates your pets. He would destroy them. God 
loves your pets more than you do because he created them. Of all the people that should be, God created Adam and Eve to be supreme superior environmentalists. He sure did, just like God is. And that should be a concern. We're going to talk about this in a couple upcoming sermons, but the greatest environmentalists on this planet should be the people of God who love this planet and every blade of grass on it just like God loves it and every blade of grass and every flower on it. God loves this planet. He didn't stop loving his planet. He never will. So, but Satan wants to destroy the whole package, everything. So the closing thought this morning is this. What is our only salvation from spiritual death and destruction in all of its forms. What is our only solution, our only salvation? Peter gives us that answer. The Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, says, There is no other name under heaven given among mankind by which we can be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus came into this messed up, broken world. He identified with our sufferings. He lived a sinless life. He went to the cross, and on that cross, he took all the poison that Satan, the serpent, could, had injected the human race with. Every ounce of the poison of sin, of Satan's attitudes, and, and all that stuff. That on that cross, Satan sank his fangs into Jesus Christ. Every ounce of poison went there. So that the poison of sin in your life, whatever form it may be, can be forgiven, washed away, taken away. Your life spared, your life returned. The art of being a human being and flourishing can come back to you and you get a second chance. We get a second chance. Human race gets a second chance. This planet gets a second chance because Jesus Christ took on the enemy at the cross and defeated him. And next week we're going to take a look at Genesis 3.15, which is the first great prophecy of the Scripture. And we're going to see that Satan struck the heel of the Lord like serpents do. They bite you and they sink their poison into you. But what did Jesus do? The prophecy says Jesus turned around and crushed the head of the serpent. On the cross, Jesus defeated the devil. And he did it for you and for me so that if we will come to Christ, if we'll come to Jesus and let Jesus come into our life and forgive us, then the victory that he won on the cross can become your personal victory, not just in eternity, but today, now, if we embrace the Savior. And he can begin to heal our lives from the destruction that has set in, whatever that destruction might be. Now, one of the biggest deceptions of Satan is this. You can bargain your way to salvation and eternal life. You can make a bargain with God. And here's the bargain people a lot of times try to make. And I want to state this clearly because I think there's a lot of people in churches that have never understood this. And there might be some people in this church that have never understood what I'm going to say here right now. Never really grasped this. But I want it to be clear today. There is this idea that I will be okay with God and when, when the time comes to step into eternity, that uh, 
God, it's going to be like this. I'm going to stand before God, and over here in this hand is going to be a list of all the good things I've done in my life, all the great and good things I've done. Over here in this hand will be a list of the bad things I've done, okay, the sins. Now, here's the important thing then in this bargaining idea, (laughs) okay, I better make sure that on that day, the list of the good things is longer than this list. And if this list is longer, then God is going to say to me, hey, Jim, you know what? Yeah, you're a decent guy. You did a good job. I've I've weighed you in the scales, and okay, the good outweighs the bad. Hey, come on into it. Come and share eternal life with me. Now, there are many, many people that think that is the way we find our salvation with God. But that is one of the lies of the enemy. It's not true. And if anyone holds that view and they stand before God someday, they're going to be rudely awakened and very disappointed. That's not it. If that's the way it happens, then we don't even need to think about Jesus Christ. There's no need for Jesus because I can get there on my own. I don't need him. The fact is, if, if, every, if every act in your life was a good act, and it was over here on this list, and there was only one little sin over on this list, it would bar you from eternity in the presence of God. And why is that? Can't God just overlook? What, what is he? can he just overlook one little sin? Well, think about it. What kind of a God would he be if he overlooked one little piece of evil, just a little teeny piece of evil? God would say, hey, you know, a little evil, that's ah, all right. I wouldn't want a God like that, and, no, and neither would you. I don't want a God who compromises in any way, shape, or form with any sin or destruction whatsoever. None. I want a pure, I want a totally holy, pure God who's filled with love and goodness and beauty, and it's untainted and unspoiled. And so that's why Jesus, it takes Jesus to be our Savior. We can't save ourselves, no matter how good you try to be. Only one human being came and lived a perfectly sinless life. That was Jesus. And he he was God. And he was qualified to go to the cross and say, I'll take Jim Nichols' sins. I'm going to take this whole list of, uh, of sins. I'm going to take that. And so all of us, there's only one way to know Jesus Christ, to know God, and to have an eternity with him and be part of this whole eternal kingdom we've been talking about here. And that is to come to Jesus Christ. And when we come, we come with repentance. And we say, Lord, I know that I have sinned. I know I've sinned. Forgive me. Forgive me of my sins. And we realize that Jesus took that list and it was nailed to the cross with him. And he he took the blame for every sin we've ever committed. When we come to him like that and receive Christ as our Savior, then we're forgiven and then something else happens. That vacuum we talked about that was vacated by God when Adam and Eve disobeyed, Well, the same living, mighty, glorious God who dwelt in Adam and Eve in the garden 
that same God, he comes back to take up residence, to live in that human heart once again so that he can begin to do a a restore job in your life. Begin to heal the wounds, the sorrows, the hearts, break the powers of sins and addictions and all those kinds of things. That's That's what salvation is all about. And there is no other name given among men. There is no other name but the name of Jesus Christ and our coming to him by faith that brings salvation to a human being. And if you want to be, oh, thank you for that, appreciate that. But if you, uh, you know, if you want to live with a fire in your bones, and I don't think there's anybody here that doesn't want to live with some flame and fire in your bones, a, a driving purpose and mission in life. I want to talk to the Christians that are here for a minute. If you're here this morning, and you've been a follower of Christ for some time, and what I've just explained up here about the gospel, about Christ's death on the cross, was sort of like this. Ooh-wee. Oh, man, I've heard that a million times. Oh. Mm. If you're a Christian, and that was your response, I want to tell you flat out, there's something, going, there's something wrong going on here. I just explained to you the most important thing, the greatest outpouring of the love of God that has ever happened on this planet or could ever possibly happen on this planet. God poured his love out in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and he did it for you and you and you and me and me, and nobody has ever done anything so significant. It's not a great act of love. And if you can sit half asleep and listen to that, then there's something dreadfully wrong in your heart and your Christianity has gone to sleep. And God wants his people to be awake to his love and his grace. It's time then, if that's us, to get back into this word, to get back into the truth, to take a a new grip and a new grasp on this salvation and this relationship that we have with our Savior. And the only kind of Christianity, the only kind of church that's going to have any impact in this world that is being destroyed, dismantled by the power of the enemy, is people of God who grasp this and have inside of themselves the flame and the fire that God wants to kindle in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So that's my challenge this morning. And it's a challenge to Jim Nichols, and it's a challenge to this church that we take this word of God seriously. One of the things that Satan wants to do is put Christians to sleep. He loves napping Christians. He'll sing lullabies to you. He, he loves you to go to sleep. He wants me to go to sleep. But we can't go to sleep. And we have every reason to be fully alive because of the power of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your presence. We thank you, Father, for your grace. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your love and for what you did for us on that cross. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will come into this room right now and you will speak this to every heart. If there are people here that have never received Christ but are thinking that everything's okay because they're just good people, I pray that you will speak to that person. Convict them, Lord, that that is not the way it happens. It is only through Jesus and repentance of our sins that we find salvation. And I pray for every believer, Lord, that you will stir our hearts and wake us up, Lord, and help us to take a new grip on you and your word. Heavenly Father, we give you praise, we give you thanks, and we pray these things in the one and only name, 
Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. 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 Amen.